those of you who don't know, my name is Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Citizens Church. And what I want you to do right now is think of somebody, or not somebody, something that you're passionate about. Okay, think of something that you're passionate about, whether that is a skill, a sport, a trade, maybe it's a field of study. Think of something that you have a lot of passion for, and then think of someone in that particular sphere that would be considered great. Okay, you have somebody in mind? What is it about that person that makes them great? We love greatness. We all strive for greatness, even if that means we will we're striving for a different version of what greatness looks like than maybe the person seated next to you. We appreciate greatness. We like to witness greatness. And so greatness is something that we are all inclined toward. But a question for us is, is what is greatness? So that person that you have in your mind, right? Think back to that person. What is it about that individual that makes them great? Is it their ability? Is it their money or their power? or their social status, or their ethnicity, or their career, or maybe information that they know, perhaps material possessions. So what is it about that individual that you're thinking of that makes them great? Because a question for us this morning is what truly defines greatness? We were made in the image of God, and so we are inclined towards greatness, understanding that God is the greatest thing, right? Spoiler alert for the sermon. Understanding that but we're inclined toward greatness. And so what is it that defines true greatness? So I would submit to you that as we go through this text in Mark 9, that what we will see is that God defines greatness by service. God defines greatness by service. Therefore, we must serve others in the way that God has instructed us to. God defines greatness by service, and so therefore we must serve others the way God has instructed us to. Now, if, we, if I speak clearly and the Holy Spirit works, then I believe that as we go through this passage, we'll have a greater understanding of the kind of service that God has called us to. We'll get a small picture of it. We'll understand what it looks like, and we'll also get a glimpse of what true greatness is. I think that's all right here in this passage of Alex just read, Mark 9, verses 30 through 41. And so last week, Michael did a tremendous job preaching uh, the previous passage, Mark 9, 14 through 29, about a, a father who had faith but needed help with his unbelief. And he showed us, Michael showed us in the text, that all things are possible for those who believe. And this week, as we continue in the book of Mark, um, if you have your Bibles, the book of Mark is in the New Testament, which is about 75% of the way through your Bible. And so you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you get that far, come back. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It's where we've been camping out since December. And it's where we will continue to camp out um, for the at least foreseeable future. And the theme that we've been seeing is that the overall, the overarching theme of Mark is God restoring his wayward people. We've all gone astray, and God brings his people back by his grace. 
And so there are three things this morning, you'll find them in your bulletin, page seven, three things that I believe that those that we must recognize if we are to serve the way that God has called us. So understanding that God defines greatness by serving. And so if he defines it that way, then how does he call us to serve? I believe there are three things that we will see in this passage, and that is that we must recognize the price, the people, and the partners right there in your bulletin. And so before we jump into that first one, let's pray for our time together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the time to gather, to remind one another of the gospel, to stir one another to love and good works. We pray that through the ministry of your word, that you would do just that. That Holy Spirit, you would soften our hearts to receive what your word says, that you would help me speak clearly, help me faithfully explain it, it would help us see the gospel more clearly in this passage. That's ultimately what your word points to. And God, we pray for other churches that are praying, or that are proclaiming this gospel. Think of Providence Church here in Westerville. Thank you for a gospel partner just right down the road. Lord, let them see fruit insofar as they continue to proclaim the gospel. Do, Lord, do the same with Linworth Baptist over in the Worthington area. Lord, we do pray for them, and we thank you for their faithful ministry and their faithful proclamation. And God, we pray for Maranatha Community Church in Pickerington. Thank you for the way that you have used them, the way that you continue to, and give them wisdom as they continue to take steps going forward. Thank you for their gospel proclamation. And Lord, we pray that we would be among these churches in faithfully proclaiming the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Help us to do that this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing that godly service recognizes is the price. We see this in the first three verses here. So right here in the first three verses, verses 30 through 32, we see Jesus and his disciples walking. We see them walking through Galilee. Now, Galilee has been the place where the majority of Jesus' ministry has taken place. He's called disciples from there. He's done miraculous things. And he now, with his disciples, are walking through. And it's almost as if he's fulfilling Deuteronomy 6, where Deuteronomy or where uh, the Lord calls his people to teach his children, teach their children along the way the things of the Lord. And Jesus is teaching his spiritual children here as he has done much ministry with them. He's, they're walking through Galilee, and he's continuing to teach them. And this, as a matter of fact, is the last time that Galilee is mentioned before the resurrection. Last time that Galilee is mentioned before the resurrection, which means that as Jesus goes through Galilee, he's only going through, and he's got his face set on Jerusalem. He's set in his mission. And so now, as they're going through, what does he teach them? He teaches them a few things. Primarily, that he's going to die, that he's going to, be, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be killed, and that he will be resurrected. Now, this is the second time that he's done this. He did it in Mark 8. And right after that, if you remember, Peter said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. And Jesus met him with a great compliment, said, get behind me, Satan. And so Mark 8, Peter tries to rebuke him, and Jesus says, no, this is happening. And so now Mark 9, he says it again. 
and we're going to see the disciples' response, but then he'll also do it again for a third time in Mark 10. Okay, so we're going to see Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Jesus three times is going to tell his disciples, going to teach his disciples what his ministry is going to look like, what the culmination of it is. And so, as I alluded to, there are three commonalities each time he does share this in Mark 8, in Mark 9, and in Mark 10. And those three things are that the Son of Man must suffer, the Son of Man must be killed, and after three days be resurrected. Now look, if you would, in verse 31, because there's a little bit of a play on words. And if we just read it too quickly, we can overlook it. So verse 31 says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man delivered into the hands of men. A little bit of irony there. The Son of Man, the perfectly righteous one, is going to be delivered into men. Wicked. You would think that Jesus, being fully divine, being God, that men could be delivered into his hands, but the reverse is taking place. The Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of men. Now that word, delivered, some translations will say betrayed. And I'm inclined to believe that delivered is a better word there. Here's why. Because the word literally means to give over or to hand over. Now it's used with John when he was put in prison. He was delivered into prison. It's used with Judas regarding Jesus. So there's one for the betray side. Judas delivered Jesus or Judas betrayed Jesus. It's used with Jesus here. And then it's also used with the future of Jesus' disciples. That they will be delivered. Now, in Acts 2.23, and this is the reason why I'm inclined to think delivered is a better word here, because what we see with what's going on is if there's a delivering of the Son of Man, who is God in the flesh, into the hands of men, it is not because he is not strong enough to overcome the hands of men. It's not a power struggle here. It's because there's a plan taking place, and Jesus is fulfilling that plan. If you look at Acts 2.23, it says this This is Peter preaching. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus delivered according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. So I'm inclined to believe that delivered is a better word there. So what does that mean? Why why even make that point? Because when we read this passage, that Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, that Jesus, the one who had no sin, is being delivered, it's not because he has done something wrong. Sometimes we are delivered into trials. Sometimes we are delivered into valleys, not because we have done anything wrong, but because our loving Father has something for us there. And we see that with Jesus here. Now, the disciples, they don't understand. They're a little bit afraid to ask. We see that in verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, typical disciples, and were afraid to ask him. So, why would they be afraid to ask? Jesus is tender. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Why would they be afraid to to ask him? Well, the New American Commentary gives at least two reasons. First one is that they may have been afraid to have been rebuked like Peter was in Mark 8. Peter wasn't sure. He just had to go on a whim, say something, and he's called Satan. 
So the other disciples, although they may be slightly dull in some situations, they're not this dull. They don't want to be called Satan. Okay, they understand that's not a good thing. Maybe may have been a reason. The other reason may have been because they feared facing the fuller explanation of what Jesus was getting at when he said that suffering and death are going to follow him because they are following Jesus. And so if suffering and death are in the future for Jesus, then what does that mean for them? And so they may have been afraid to ask him, what exactly do you mean by that? Look with me, if you would, if you have your Bible, look at Mark 13. Just look a few pages to the right. Mark 13, verses 9 through 13. And notice the language here being used of deliverance. We see verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You may have been afraid to ask Jesus, what exactly are you talking about? Just a few chapters later, Jesus explains it for him. You're going to be delivered. You will be hated for my sake. And if Christ was delivered to suffering and death, the logical explanation, the logical conclusion is that we will be as well if we are following him. So, know the steep price that is to be paid. If we are going to serve, if we are going to serve one another, if we are going to serve our Savior, we must count the cost. We must know the, the price to be paid. Jesus, going through Galilee, again reveals to his disciples, I am going to suffer, I'm going to die. On the third day, I'm going to resurrect. And anyone who follows Jesus will experience the same. Suffering may look different in different contexts, different spheres, but we will not be loved and put on a pedestal for following after Jesus. There is suffering, and eventually, if the Lord tarries, if he doesn't come back soon, we will taste death. But if we are in Christ, then we will be resurrected with him. Count the cost, know the, know the price, and trust our faithful Father throughout it all. So one of the questions as before we move on to the, the next point is, are you trusting God even when he delivers you into a trial, into a difficult situation? Is it something that you don't feel like you deserved? Into something that you don't have an answer for? You can't see the big picture. You don't know how in the world this is going to ultimately work for my good. Are you trusting God? Are you prepared to be rejected? Are you prepared to be hated by others? Are you prepared to suffer and to die for our Savior? And then do you at times feel slow to understand like the disciples? Jesus surrounded himself with people who were not considered the highest in society, with 
people who were considered unlearned men. They had questions all the time. Jesus knew what he was getting into. It's not like he was surprised and thinking, oh, man, what, that, what have I done? I didn't realize I have to answer this many questions. There are times where he shows frustration, but he ultimately shows patience. And he knows that they will ask questions. And so if you feel like you don't understand, as you read scriptures, you dive into scriptures, you look at the situations around you, not sure how to make sense of it, don't be afraid to ask Jesus, ask God Help me understand. Give me some clarity here. I, I need help. Just know that you can ask questions. Don't feel like you're a failure if you come before the Lord with questions. It's better to be honest with him than to lie to him and act like you know everything that he's doing. And so Jesus surrounded himself with some of those who were considered the last in society. But even more so, he makes a point here in verses 33 through 37 as we move into that second point where we recognize the people that we are called to serve. And so as they're walking, what we see is that there's a discussion about greatness, right? Jesus speaks of sacrifice. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected. And then they get to where they're going. And Jesus says, hey, what were we all talking about on the way? And like, ah, we don't really want to say. But the text tells us that they were talking about who's the greatest, now, why, why would they be talking about who's the greatest when Jesus is talking about giving up of himself? Well, likely, one of the earlier passages was Peter, James, and John going up on the mountain and seeing the transfiguration. And so maybe they're kind of, oh, well, what did you guys see? Well, we can't talk about it. Well, you think you're greater than us? Or what's going on there? Like, we're, And maybe a conversation of greatness came about. The Pillar of New Testament commentary says this, that in all three Passion predictions, Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. In all three, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, suffering, and death. And following all three, the disciples voice their ambitions for status and prestige. Jesus speaks of surrendering his life. The disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. He counts the cost of discipleship. They count its assets. doesn't mean that there aren't rewards for following Christ. There certainly are. Those rewards come after the long road of costly discipleship, of following after our suffering Savior. Jesus talks about suffering, death, and resurrection, and the disciples talk about status and prestige. And they respond with silence because they feel guilt and shame. Right? You've been asked a question at the wrong time, and you recognize, oh, shoot, if I actually say what I was talking about or what I was doing, it's not going to go well for me. So you just keep silent. It's the lesser of two evils, so to speak, in that situation. The disciples decide to stay quiet here. Now, the phrase there of them being silent is the same. It's three Greek words, and it's the same Greek words that are used when Jesus silences the Pharisees. So when the Pharisees try to come with him with questioning, try to catch him, and he responds, and he catches them off guard, and they fall silent, it's the same phrase there as being used with the disciples here. And so now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, I mean, we are over halfway through the book of Mark, and at this point, we see very little difference between the disciples and the Pharisees. The disciples are ashamed. They feel guilt. They fall silent. And in the same way, the Pharisees fall silent. Now, 
Jesus makes the point. So he makes the point that to be first, to be great, you must be servant of all. James Edwards says that service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. Service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. This uh, word servant is, um, the original word is diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon. One of the two offices within the church. We see elder and we see deacon. We see that in 1 Timothy 3. So you can see the qualifications of each one. Now that word deacon means servant. So when Jesus says we're called to be a diakonos of all, it means we're to be a servant of all. Deacons are not just the only ones who serve within the church. They're just one who lead in a particular way of serving. So we are all called to, to deacon or to serve. And Jesus makes the point here. And how, how does he do it? How does he make the point? Look in verse 35. We're going to read 35 through 37. So Jesus sits down. Now, this, when he sits down, this is a cultural thing of him saying, I am somebody of worth. I am somebody of value. I, I have status. Because what would happen is teachers in that day who were known for being great teachers, they would take a seat and people would gather around them to hear what they had to say. So Jesus is talking about serving all. He's talking about being a servant to everybody. He's talking about laying down your life. And he sits down. So on one hand, he's saying, I'm going to serve everybody. I'm going to consider myself lower than everybody. On the other hand, he's also saying, but you should listen to me. I am somebody worthy of your attention. And so we see verse 35. He sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So I'm going to start at the end there. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is making the point that he is God in the flesh. He has made the point that he is the son of man, that he is the son of God, indicating that he has been sent from God. And so if someone receives him, he says, they're receiving the one who sent me. He's putting himself on an equal plane with God the Father. Side thing. Now, primary thing that we want to see here is in verse 35, the child. Now, in a society that Jesus was in, in that culture, there's high infant mortality rates, and there was a high demand for human labor. And so there was not time to get sentimental over children who did not make it past infancy. So when Jesus calls a child to him, he is calling the lowest of society. In our society, we value children. That's why us as believers, that's why we, we hate abortion. Because we believe that life starts at conception. We value children. But even those who would not be in that camp, they still would value children. Maybe not in the same way. But when the child is born, they see a three-year-old, they see a four-year-old running around, they would value that individual because our culture values kids. In this culture, the value was not placed on an individual until they could participate in the human labor. 
And so a three-year-old, a four-year-old, five-year-old don't have the same value as a 12 and 13-year-old. So when Jesus brings a child over to him and says, whoever accepts this child, he's making the point that we must accept the lowest. We must accept the last. We're not called to just accept those who are great, those who have high value. We are called to accept even what would be considered the lowest in our society. Jesus joyfully welcomes them. And so what we see is that true greatness, true greatness is serving all people, sacrificially serving others the way that Jesus did, receiving the last as Jesus did, serving the last as Jesus did, considering others before yourself as Jesus did doing good to all as we have opportunity. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there is a priority there. We are called to one another, for we are called to others. However, we are still called to sacrificially serve people. So the question for us is, is this us? Does this reflect us sacrificially serving others, going out of our way, inconveniencing ourselves? How often do we, like the disciples, count the assets of discipleship rather than the cost? What can this do for me? How is this convenient for me? How can I consume rather than how can I give? Are we willing to sacrificially serve those considered the last in our society? Might not be children in our society. Might be another group? Are we willing to serve even those who seem to be the last in our society? One of the things um, that we're trying to roll out, and it's an opportunity for all of us, is that as community groups, maybe take a night, and instead of going about the ordinary rhythm where we gather to kind of discuss the sermon, try to apply it throughout the week, rather than doing that, maybe say, hey, you know what, guys, let's gather, but let's go serve our community in some way. Let's do that once a term. So find opportunities, find ways to serve together. And then are you sacrificially serving others through good works? So there's a um, wonderful confession of faith that was made public in 1689. It's called the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And it has a whole section on good works. And it says this. It says, good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidence of a true and lively faith And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God whose workmanship they are. Did you see the six benefits that are laid out in that one paragraph? Six benefits of serving others through good works. Manifest thankfulness. It shows that you're grateful to God for what he has done strengthens your assurance and your faith by serving others. You get to see what God is doing and it strengthens your own assurance. It edifies other believers. It builds them up. It adorns the gospel. It makes much of what God has done. It stops the mouths of adversaries. As we sacrificially serve one another and serve others, it stops the mouths of those who say we're intolerant and we're bigots and we're hateful because they see the way that we love one another and they see it the way that we love even the last in our culture, and ultimately it glorifies God. 
So to serve the way God has called us, we must recognize the price of serving. We must recognize the people we are called to serve, even the last. And third, we must recognize the partners in that service. So what we see in verse 38 now is that Jesus is interrupted by the disciples, and they have something to tell him. And they say, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So, something to hone in on in that verse is that they tried to stop him not because they weren't following Jesus. The disciples tried to stop him because that individual was not following them. They said, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. When they should have said, you. If someone was doing what seemed to be miraculous works and they were, was not in the name of Jesus, then they would want to point him to the one who is the, the true author of the miraculous works. But he's doing these works in Jesus' name. But they're, he's not following the disciples. And so how quickly the disciples made the ministry about them rather than Jesus. This brother is doing works. He's proclaiming the gospels, casting out demons in Jesus' name. But because he wasn't in their camp, they tried to stop him. It'd be like a doctor over at the James who treats cancer. It'd be like him getting mad at Riverside or any other hospital that also treats cancer. It'd be silly. Cancer is being treated. It's being healed. People are getting better. It doesn't have to come through one hospital or one specific doctor. And so Jesus responds now to his disciples. And so what does he say? He says, don't stop him. Because anyone who does a mighty work in my name won't be able to speak evil of me. Be like a skeptic saying, you know what? I don't think planes are all they're chalked up to be. I'd rather drive. I think I can get there just as quick. But as soon as they get on a plane and fly from here to California and get there in less than five hours, they're not going to be able to say, you know what, that's a scam. They're going to say, ah, you know what, the, the planes, the, this plane thing works. I guess it's a little quicker than, than driving the minivan. Okay? In the same way, Jesus says, anyone who has a mighty work in my name will not soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. The key, though, is that it's in Jesus' name. We were never meant to serve alone. And God rewards those who do even the smallest gift, smallest good work, smallest sacrificial act of serving in his name, even so small as giving a cup of cold water. And we are not called to do this alone. So what is our posture toward those who are in other theological camps, those who are at other churches, those who are in other denominations? Now, I want to caveat that by saying, insofar as they are faithfully proclaiming the gospel. We're not going to say that they're doing fine if they're proclaiming heretical stuff. Okay, Don't hear that. I'm not advocating for heretical groups. But I am saying that insofar as they are proclaiming Christ crucified, insofar as they are not watering down the gospel, then we should rejoice with them. We should pray for these other churches. That's one of the reasons why we try to pray for other churches each Sunday, because we're grateful that it's not all up to us. Just within a five-mile radius of here, there's over 150,000 people. And they're not all fitting in this room. We need other 
gospel outpost in Westerville, in Columbus. We want to see other churches that are proclaiming the good news. We rejoice with them. We praise God for them. We pray that they would stay faithful to preaching the gospel. So when we recognize others who are doing this, they don't have to be in this room to be doing gospel ministry. Then also, individually, have you made the decision to, to partner with a body of believers? One practical way of doing that is just simply church membership. This, tonight, we have a members meeting where we will recite our membership covenant. And one of those things that we recite is how we support the ministry and we try to encourage and spur one another on to good works. So this is something that we promise with, with one another. We recognize that we are gospel partners. We need to encourage each other in these things. So our natural inclination is not towards serving others, it's towards serving ourselves. So have you made the choice to partner with a group of believers? Um, a pastor uh, named Bruce Thieleman, pastor of First Presbyterian Church, um, in Pittsburgh, God's country, told of a <laughs> conversation. Don't let that comment ruin this illustration, okay? <laughs> told, told of a conversation with an active layman who mentioned, you preachers talk a lot about giving, but when you get right down to it, it all comes down to basin theology. Thieleman asked, basin theology, what's that? The layman replied, remember what Pilate did when he had the chance to acquit Jesus? He called for a basin and washed his hands of the whole thing. But Jesus, the night before his death, called for a basin and proceeded to wash the feet of the disciples. It all comes down to basin theology. Which basin will you use? We are called to sacrificially serve one another. We must be doers of the word and not hearers only. God defines greatness by service. Therefore, we must serve others the way Christ has served us, by recognizing the price, by receiving and serving even the last of people, and by rejoicing with gospel partners. So to those who are ready to serve, those who are quick to jump in, praise God. Thank you. Um, Years ago, I heard uh, Matt Chandler talk about this, and he gave two questions for those who are ready to jump in. He said, am I seeing serving opportunities in view of my own interests? How can I be served? How can they do something better or more efficiently or more effectively? Or two, am I seeing opportunities to make much of the name and renown of Jesus Christ by serving others? What is your ultimate desire, your ultimate motivator, when serving. If you're ready to jump in and, and serve, praise God. We, we need people to serve. Not only here, but there is a felt need throughout the city. Praise God for the desire to jump in. But make sure that the desire, the motivator behind serving is not to make much of yourself or to make much of the camp that you're in, but to make much of Christ. And then to those who aren't quite ready to serve, those who hear this and may not quite be there. Let the words of John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, speak here. He said, if the church was worth Jesus' blood, is it not worth our labor? If the church was worth Jesus' blood, is it not worth our labor? The truth is that Christ came to serve. 
Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Serving by giving his life as a ransom for many. That is the way in which Jesus serves, by giving his life for many. Now, the many there means many, but it doesn't mean everybody. And so only those who rely entirely on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for the means of their salvation will be able to inherit the rewards that come with perfect righteousness. The only way to serve the way God has called us to is to become a servant of Christ. The truth is none of us are free. We're all servants to something, whether it's servants to the flesh or servants to Christ. The question is, which one are you serving today? Which one will you serve going forward? Because only one of them provides true freedom. As we serve, we're either serving the flesh or we are serving Christ, but only one of them provides true and lasting freedom. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We are grateful for the plan between you, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before there was even time to deliver the Son into the hands of men so that those who are guilty of putting him on the cross would be able to go free if they would trust him, if they would embrace him as Savior, if they would embrace him as their master and their Lord. God, we pray that in light of that, we would sacrificially serve others, that we would seek opportunities to love one another, that we'd seek opportunities to love the last and to serve them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.